You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Stephen Kolber, a teacher, writer and researcher from Melbourne, Australia. Stephen is one of 50 finalists in the Global Teacher Prize 2021. In this episode, we explore Stephen's role as an English and humanities teacher at a public government high school. We also find out how driven by a fundamental enjoyment of learning, Stephen works globally with technology, instructional video, and assistive technology to promote education. In our conversation, we explore the education reading group, hashtag edureading, where teachers read an academic research paper, then respond and discuss its practical classroom application via short Flipgrid videos and Twitter. Stephen clarifies the distinction between academics and teachers and the often complicated and nuanced dynamics and protocols of the educational research space. Stephen offers insights into the fundamental aims of the Edu Reading Group, that is, to encourage teachers to use online spaces for their professional learning and to develop their confidence, skills and knowledge in educational research. This might then relate to other issues such as politics and context, power dynamics and respect, communication and flexibility of ideas, and teachers talking back to research. Stephen hopes that once teachers have a greater interest, engagement and agency with educational research, their activities might extend into related areas such as education policy making and planning their own research projects, including writing up and sharing their findings with other educators. Here's my conversation with Stephen Kolber. So, thanks very much. Very nice to be speaking with you, Stephen. Thanks for having me along. <laughs> so, I thought we could start off by finding out more about some of your kind of formative aspects of, you know, like where did you study or what were you always interested in being a teacher when you were at school? And you can go, you know, as far back as you you want to remember. But so... How did, and then I guess ultimately it's how we got to this moment now. So what say ye? All right, let me think. Um, thankfully, lots of people have been asking me this question. Um, my earliest sort of memory would be kind of like, I don't know, my mum's always been a teacher. She was for a long time. And so uh, sitting at the table researching like butterflies or something as a young little kid, uh, using the encyclopedia, which, you know, perhaps dates my, my existence a little bit, uh, pre-internet, sadly. These are the uh, printed you know, encyclopedias like on the bookshelf. That's the one, yeah, Encyclopedia Britannica or something similar. Were you um, a Britannica kind of or a, a world book or a Britannica type of person? Uh, I, think I think it was a world book, yeah. <laughs> I'm not snobbish about it. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I don't know, that to me is like a kind of seminal memory of me just enjoying learning things, which sort of, I think, dictates most of my life now. 
Um, I, and then, you know, I finished school and thought, well, school was all right. That was fun. Uh, I wanted to do an arts degree, but uh, a cousin of mine had just finished her arts degree and she seemed to have the options of either working in an office or uh, in the, uh, sorry, working in a cafe or in the go- in government. And uh, she ended up working in the government. And I thought, well, that sounds pretty boring. So I was like, maybe I could do arts and something else. So I did arts and teaching. And at the end of four years, kind of, you know, from a cohort of 500 te- teachers, teachers to be, it was down to about 20 of us. And I sort of thought, oh, maybe I want to be a teacher kind of thing. But it you was mean, that that kind of that realisation. You mean like the attrition rate type thing through like yeah. this many start and then this many finish type thing? Yeah, so a four-year degree, there was like a lecture theatre of like 500 and, you know, you were but one spec and then by the end we were sort of smushed into a room off a corridor. And, yeah, and then it was literally like that. I, I looked around and thought, oh, I'm kind of like these people. Maybe this is, you know, not just something I did to, like, give me more options, but maybe something I'll do. And then, yeah, this is my 11th year now. So I came out of high school, went to uni for four years, came straight out of uni, and then have been teaching ever since. So it's sort of all that I know. Oh, yeah, there is that pathway. It's a sort of curious one that I, I myself have experienced, but it's I didn't realise that wasn't just normal. It was speaking to other people, I thought, and I realised, oh, there's a whole world out there, but it's kind of like that happens a lot, as I understand, with teachers. They go their culture, that kind of idea of timetables, little cohorts, and then they're back into it. And then, so what happened when you graduated and you you got your you started working? What was your early kind of? Um, I don't know. For so about life? three or four years, I would say I. Um, Ate shit basically. I was, <laughs> it was rough. Does that mean it's very poetic? <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I'm an English teacher, so it's my poetic <laughs> license coming out. Yes. Um, yeah, like basically, you know, I was like, what, 21, and my students were, you know, 18, 17. And so there was a lot of kind of, and at that time, my school was a little bit more rugged than it is now. Um, you know, so it wasn't uncommon for there be, to be a fight in my class kind of situation. And, yeah, so I struggled and I kind of learnt the ropes and learnt what it means. Um, I don't know, it's not a very natural thing to walk into a room and sort of command space and to command attention and to command authority. Uh, but that's kind of, that's part of what it is to be a teacher, which is something that def- definitely didn't come naturally to me as kind of a naturally shy, introspective person. So it took many years to kind of, you know, develop confidence in myself as a speaker and as a learner and as a teacher. Um, yeah, so the this, first years were tough. This resonates with me. I mean, you know, 40 years later, um, what, I'm just wondering how, what sort of, uh, how does one command a room? Or, you know, what were some of the things that you, that twigged or, you know, you kind of, aha, that's what you do kind of thing in terms of, because, I mean, that is another concept, I think, with people that are not teachers that's kind of something that's not even on their radar. Like it's not in their job description, this commanding a room, whereas it's arguably fundamental and they don't often teach you that. So what did you, mm. what did you discover? Like, like any practical tips you can share? I don't, I don't know about that. In, I don't know. Uh, it's kind of like. Did you use dramatic me, silences, dramatic pauses or, you know, things like that? Yeah, well. I mean, like, you know, I would think the 
the best way to explain it is almost like, you know, when my wife and I go out into the world and there's something happening that needs organization, we sort of, <laughs> you have that thing of like, I could yell and I could have this line sorted or I could have this minor altercation fixed. You know, it's like, um, it's very similar. We watched a documentary not that long ago of like prison guards and they're sort of standing at the glass and they're doing all the body language and they're pointing at their head and they're, you know, put, putting their finger up to silence people. And I sort of thought, gee, that's, that's what we do, you know, like it's, um, and trying to explain to a, a new teacher, a student teacher, a pre-service teacher, the amount of things you can do just sitting at a desk with your eyes and your face and your body language to, you know, <laughs> have 25 different people uh, to be indicating to them if they're doing a good thing, a bad thing, a questionable thing, uh, just facially like with a, an, a raised eyebrow or a, a narrowing of the eyes is sort of, it's, it's a craft and it's something that doesn't come easily. But I guess the, the reason the first couple of years were, was hard, were hard is because I had to discover what, what I felt was acceptable and what I felt wasn't acceptable. And that's kind of, that's the sort of thing that, as you say, isn't taught. And it's in many respects, the sort of thing you have to um, sort of, basically it's just a process of reflection and failure. Like you sort of think, you know, no one, no one in university is going to say, oh, what would you do if a student told you to, you know, get dot, 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 dot. Um, and it's sort of like, well, in theory, I would do this. But when it happens, that's a, that's a different kettle of fish. And so then that night or the next morning, you got to sort of think, all right, how do I, how, how will I respond to that next time? And how do I feel about that? And, you know, how will I, you know, what's the appropriate response for each of the multitude of things that human beings can do to one another? Yeah, you mean like the logistics of responding or to managing the space or just kind of like getting through the day almost, those sort of practical uh, kind of as aspects, not the content, in other words, not the, not the teaching content. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, the content for me was always uh, a strength, but it's, it's even like, you know, uh, like it would be nice to have five days to plan a unit or to plan a worksheet or to plan an activity, but... Uh, it, as teachers, like, you know, you usually have about half an hour to pr prepare a day or to prepare, you know, four, four or five hours of instruction. So that kind of flexibility and uh, dynamism to be able to do that quickly and sharply is definitely something that is needs to be learned, kind of that time sensitive. All right, I've got this needs to be marked in 30 minutes so I can give it back, like that kind of <laughs> yeah. attention and focus. Mm. And then when you were like do more the arts, possibly the arts kind of component of your study, was that mainly in English and literature, I'm guessing, or something related mm. to that? Yeah. So I was English and history trained. So we did a whole bunch of, you know, New Zealand, South African, post-colonial, all that sort of stuff. I was at a Catholic university. So we did one unit of Bible studies, like Bible as literature, which was for them quite, you know, war out there. Um, but that was quite good fun as well. What does that mean? And yeah, just reading, reading lots of classics. What does that mean? Um, so, so, well, the traditional view, I guess, would be the Bible as religious text, as, you know, teachings. Uh, but this was looking at it as you, as you would, as an English teacher would look at, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird or something like that. So we'd look at the context, we'd look at, oh, I wonder who wrote this one and, uh, you know, why were these texts never included in the, in the you know, the Bible uh, in inverted commas that uh, we, we take to hold now? You know, what literary techniques did they use? What style of writing was chosen? 
how does kind of how can you find authorial voice all the way across the books like yeah it's pretty radical for them and quite fun as a result i think yeah and then what about what else like in terms of your up until getting up to speed for where we are now did you mm. kind of once you've once you kind of tackled some um you know the classroom management aspects then what happened um so somewhere about halfway through i guess i as a new teacher you normally get sort of a chunk of the same classes because they feel like oh, that will help them learn or their classes that no one else wants to teach so for us that was year eight and year nine and so i would often have like three year nine humanities classes or three year nine english classes and so there was a lot of repetitioning, a repetition occurring. So somewhere in the middle, like 2016, uh, I started making videos. So that kind of, to me, was transformational because it meant, okay, well, that PowerPoint you delivered three times in one week, uh, the core content that you taught the same way three times or across three, three years, four years, five years, I would then turn into a video and that would free me up to kind of do more interesting things, I think, um, yeah. or at least give me the flexibility and the option to. Uh, that was a change, and I got a master's of TESOL and a diploma of teach a diploma of teaching ASD students. So that's teaching English as a second language. TESOL. Yeah. Yep. That's the one. Teaching okay. English to speakers of other languages. Yeah. Okay. And what, what was yeah? The, what was the other one? That, the other qualification? Uh, teaching ASD students, so students students with autism spectrum disorder. So that was like at a teaching at special schools and those sort of things. And then, yeah, and then I got the, a bridging degree that takes you from uh, undergrad to potentially PhD study. So at that point, I thought that's what I wanted to do. But, yeah, so a lot of study, a lot of teaching, and a lot of trying to do things in new ways that okay. gets me to here, I guess. Is there mm. anything more in that but? Because like, you said about the PhD and then but. I'll just, like, I don't, I don't think that's, to me, I don't think that's necessary Uh at this point in my life anyway it seems seems to me people do a phd so that they can then you know write a book have a podcast do a you know appear on things go and speak and present <laughs> at conferences and you know those sort of things and i feel like well I'm, I'm i can do all those things without the phd so why waste you know for me it would be six years past part time um but i feel like yeah i can do all those activities without having to have a doctor in front of my name and trying to set myself above people with that. Gosh, so we could speak all day about what those last few sentences. Um, <laughs> I was wondering about the, your trigger of how you got into the video aspect. And then I guess I'm just reflecting on my own, um, that concept. I, I remember like oh, many, many years ago when I was overseas, this concept of the, 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 this teacher, I sat in on a class and then they were teaching exactly the same lesson to multiple students, like six classes or something. And I thought, wow, I'd I wasn't familiar with that. And then that, when I was teaching in higher ed, that concept came up. But I, I actually enjoyed that me as the, the sort of doing the same thing pretty much. But then I was really fascinated by the different cohort of students and how they would respond to pretty much the same trigger material but yeah i can understand on a practical level it, it's a kind of it's a neat way to solve that situation by just pre-recording little pieces of content 
Um, and then what did you just put that on the school uh, intranet or something like that, or how did? Um, I think the first one in, well, that's the idea. No, um, yeah. So I put it on YouTube, I think, and that's that sort of was a seminal and accidental step, to be honest. But um, so kind of, yeah. I think that that made everything where I am now possible, I guess, because yeah, I could have just put it shyly on the school intranet or made it private or, you know, only so only my students could see it or something like that. Admittedly, it was terrible. Like it's, you know, when I present at conferences now, like I show a, a you know, here's me in 2021 with a green screen and a nice camera and, you know, it's all HD and fancy and that sounds good. And then here's my first video in, you know, 2016 sometime. And it's looks like I've put Vaseline on the lens and, if you have headphones in, you can hear the the laptop fan spinning and vibrating the whole computer, and um, you know. But that's that's the technology we had at the time, especially us as teachers. Like I wasn't, you know, at the cutting edge of technology or anything, and never, never have been really. Um, but yeah, so making it public sort of, I think, made a lot of difference because, like now, I could say, you know, there's what 600,000 people that have watched videos of mine since then and that's just because I probably didn't know enough about YouTube to make it private so it wasn't like oh this is great I should share this with the world it was like a I don't know that's I click submit you know <laughs> and then off it went um but yeah like that the first experience I think was um poetry meta language or something and I sent my year nine kids off and I said just watch this at home fill in this you know three column piece of paper with the key information and bring it back and then they all did and I sort of thought oh okay <laughs> I didn't think that would work and some of the kids that struggled the most in class for a whole range of reasons you know distraction uh all sorts of other things not having eat, eaten whatever it was um they came in and were like oh that was really great like that worked really well for me because I could do it, you know, on the bus, I could do it at home, I could do it in a place that's quiet rather than, and, you know, this is me as a uh, baby teacher. So maybe the classes weren't as quiet or as orderly as you would like them to be, but they were able to do some of that work at home. And that's that's something that, yeah, not, it's not something I do consistently. Like, you know, that's not a model that I've adopted full scale. They do everything at home or anything, but it definitely gives me gives me the option to do that and i think and you know maybe you doing a podcast is similar oops um but yeah it's quite often that we don't hear ourselves speak or hear ourselves teach or do our job or present or anything like that but part of the process of recording things and putting them somewhere is you hear yourself and you go oh that's what i sound like that's what the rest of the world hears of me you know Sure, we've all sat in a university lecture and you tick off the vocal ticks of the presenter <laughs> and kind of on a bingo board and go up, oh, they're doing that thing again. They're saying that thing they always say or they're, you know, saying a spoonerism or all those sort of things. But the person speaking probably doesn't know that of themselves. So I guess it's a reflective process, I feel. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So you're, you've been working on a project for the last number of years called Edgy Reading. So what's that about? Like what are the mechanics to make that happen? Where did it, where did it begin? I think it 
took it back to 2018, so sort of um, uh, at you know some vague un- union conference, they said you should jump onto Twitter, and I realised I had a Twitter account that had about you know a thousand followers that were all selling Bitcoin or something. You know, probably not Bitcoin in 2018, but garbage. And so I sort of went through and deleted all my followers and started you know a teacher account because that that seemed to be the thing that I was interested in. And then more and more, you know, sort of I explored what was on there and the idea was that teachers were on there um, doing professional learning, but it seemed the accepted truth seemed to be that kind of you go on there and I'd say, hey, Mark, I need a worksheet, you know, for tomorrow on XYZ and then you'd send it and I'd go, all right, good, and then go about my business. Um, But more and more it seemed like people were running like discussions and live chats and all those sort of things. So for an hour you'd sit down and you'd talk about, you know, an obscure pedagogical approach or an obscure element of teaching and how you might do it better, feedback, you know, direct instruction, all sorts of things like that. And I started to think, you know, this is this is interesting. This is something I should get into. And then, yeah, around 2018, um, I've sort of said, you know, I think at that point my university days had sort of finished. I'd, <laughs> I'd probably not been part-time studying for a little while. And I felt like, oh, there's, you know, I still had that itch to engage with research and all those sort of things. But I found more and more that when I did further study, it was kind of like um, I was in a, in, a, in a world of my own in the sense that like I was tearing through the readings and finding others. And, you know, whereas the majority of people sort of were just like, oh, I'm just, you know, I've just finished a long day. I don't want to be reading papers, but I'm here to, you know, get a, an accreditation of some sort. So I sort of thought, all right, I want... Teachers on Twitter talking about research, you know, maybe a little bit more deep than just swapping worksheets, those sort of things. So initially, I think I said something like, hey, it's teachers only, the academics can wait outside sort of thing. <laughs> so what does very, that, very what does that mean? Changed. For those people mm. that are not, that might be listening that are not teachers or academics, what, what's the difference? What do you, what, what do you mean? Um, well, that's kind of, that's that's part of the paper we'll get to, I guess, but it's sort of like academics work in universities and they write papers. They, you know, their split is like 40% research, 40% teaching, 20% service. So most of what they're doing is researching and whereas teachers are about, you know, some would say 130% <laughs> teaching and very little else. So any time that um, teachers are engaging with research, it, seems, it feels to me like they're doing it almost you know, with concrete shoes or underwater, like it's it's challenging, whereas that, an academic has 40% of their time committed to it. Some, some of, of that, that poetry coming out again. And so I guess it's, yeah, um, what are they, we, these academics you speak of, you know, and again, this is just mainly for people just to get them up to speed. What do they research? Like surely teaching isn't that difficult, as someone might say. What, what type of things are they researching and what, how do they go about it? Like just a sh- the short version. Um, so basically the tricky part is the academy is sort of split down a theory, theory practice divide generally. So there's, you know, people writing about let's a- apply, you know, Rousseau's theory to, you know, classroom surveillance. And so that's kind of in a very nebulous sort of theoretical space. Uh, and then there's more of your practice-focused academics. This is education academics. I can't speak beyond that realm. Um, and that's more, okay, we're going to go survey some teachers. We're going to you know, try a new intervention uh, and we're going to see how well it does. 
And the tricky part for me as a teacher is very often that latter group, and obviously this broad, broad, broad stroke, of course, um, but that latter group, anytime they're engaging with teachers, it's like um, you would go from Mark Parry to, you know, uh, pseudonym one uh, in pseudonym school has this happening. So it's like the teachers are de-identified, their ideas are sort of stripped out, or sometimes you might be included kind of like in a, in a block quote, um, but it wouldn't say your name, it wouldn't say where you were from. So any teacher reading that sort of lacks context, lacks who, who owns these ideas. Yeah, I've been uh, definitely, it sounds like quite a nerdy thing to say, but I've more recently <laughs> been really getting into context Context mm. for everything, because I've been listening to this um, book about left and right brain thinking, and then this con mm. the concept of context, and this that seems to be recurring. But yeah, that that idea of research aren't they those aren't they sort of standard research processes and protocols to kind of de-identify and strip out the individual, look for patterns, look for just that sort of kernel of truth or whatever, like I guess I'm just kind of uh, – because I, as as you know, I'm not um, – I, I sort of uh, have got gaps in my research um, reading uh, practices. Um, mm, yeah, but, I mean, I, <laughs> I guess it's just kind of – that's the done thing, though, I'm assuming, that, that that context isn't so important. It's more about this sort of – you know, truths that can be transferred across to other, mm. to everything or something like that. I haven't phrased that very well. No, no, yeah, absolutely. Like it's basically trying to apply the scientific, scientific method to schools. Um, and we've, you know, we've done that for as long as educational research has been a thing. And like, you know, to go back to your earlier question, if you held a gun to a education academic's head and said, tell me something that you can say with surety that you can stand in confidence and say the, it, when teaching you should dot 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 and guarantee that it will work um there's very few things that we have like there's some we could say like oh you know de bono's hats is outdated as a theory uh but that's not that's not necessarily a productive forward moving thing it's kind of like well that thing that we used to think we we prefer not to think that or learning styles we you know, there's a lot of people who say, ha, ha, we've gotten rid of learning styles. They're not real. Um, but, you know, what have we replaced it with? What, you know, what, what, what can we actually say? And so to, from my perspective, and this is very much, we all have our own little my, myopisms, uh, it's a movement back to context. So my research is autoethnographic, which basically means you're doing, you know, you're looking at yourself. The, the subject is you and you're literally saying, my name is this. This is where I live. This is what I do. And therefore, this is what informs my work. And here's what I think about things. So to me, and, you know, I might be overstating it to say that's a movement or that's something that's happening. But to me, you know, the scientific method has its limitations in education. We've got, you know, a thousand, te a thousand students in my school. You've got 80 plus adults that are directly teaching. You've got 50, 60 plus education support staff. You've got a whole bunch of home factors, cultural factors, like to think that you can just look at that and say, well, feedback will be effective here. Um, you know, the answer is, well, yes. Uh, to quote our mate John Hattie, everything works, uh, but uh, where does it work and how does it work and when does it work? And all those sort of contextual questions are things that I don't think we need to shy away from. So you found, though, I'm assuming that the, the teachers that are participating in 
the edgy reading group, they're, they're swimming in their own context, each individual, and so they need things that are going to actually impact on their day-to-day work or, you know, their, their experience. They sort of can't always, don't always have the time to kind of read a paper that might have some abstract truth that needs to be, you know, uh, interpreted or something like that. So is that that kind of the, like a, the short version of, of to explain where the teachers are coming from? Yeah, I mean, I, I would push back against that a little bit because, I, you know, it's easy to think that, you know, teachers are, are, are simply teachers. Like, you know, learning in and of itself is interesting. And even if we were to read, you know, my abstracted, made-up version of what does Rousseau think on, you know, behaviour management, that in and of itself, the process of reading that and considering that would be useful for the human being that is also, you know, professionally a teacher. But, yeah, there's like a... Bringing teachers to academia brings a certain vitality because, as you say, they're, they're looking for something. They're chasing answers. So, like, if I just think of our discussion last night, so the, the author of the piece was kind of in our Twitter discussion kind of saying, you've misinterpreted it and that's not exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, But it's really? kind of like, um, yeah. And so, it, you know, he's kind of saying, well, did you read the paper at all? And it's like, well, for some of them, no. And for some of them, yes, yes, but. So they've kind of gone, well, this, this sounds theoretical and interesting and compelling, but also um, I have to make this work where I work, where I live, where I, you know, fly my trade. And so there's, there's a tension there that's really interesting to explore, I think, between teachers trying to find how things fit with their context versus these big ideas, these big concepts that we talk about and, um, yeah. So what, what sort of model, like what do you, what, how do you make the, this happen? Like I know how you make it happen, just the kind of broad mechanical, but I guess just so that people understand what what do you do each month with, you've got a research paper that's been written by an academic that's based on their research uh, activity, I guess, and then that's the starting point. And then what happens? So I guess... For me as the facilitator, it's kind of like we're up to next month's 29. So we've gone through a few. You're looking for something that's sort simple enough to kind of summarise into a topic. But basically what people do, I pick an article, I write three prompts. So, you know, rather than questions, it's not a yes or a no thing. Uh, three prompts inspired by the article that pull out preferably the main the main topics and the there's a whole bunch of different ways to engage with it. But the main one is a short Flipgrid video, which is, you know, less than five minutes, a short little response to the prompt. And then recently we've added a Twitter space, which is an audio discussion that tends to be a little bit more um, accessible, I guess. Uh, and then in the last Sunday of the month, we have a Twitter discussion for an hour that is informed by all of the things that have been talked about before. So, um, to use this past month as an example. So the article itself was quite uh, obtuse and advanced, let's say, complicated, um, but the things that came out of it were much more grounded around, you know, self-peer feedback um, that weren't necessarily part of the original article, but the teachers have sort of put their own spin on it, their own interpretation, their own context on it. And so that means at the end of the month we have a discussion that's informed not by the article and not by what I think, but what sort of has bubbled up through the conversation and the discussion. So to me, that's that's what 
gives it vitality, the idea that um, we're all bubbling away on the same pot and then we're trying to get together at the end and make some sort of a gumbo or soup out of it, I guess. So if we think of a practical example, um, the interesting part for me is definitely that uh, what I intend or what the author of an article intends isn't necessarily what happens. So to, to talk about a very specific example, we'll go back right to the start somewhere in early 2019. We we're talking about uh, John Sweller, uh, who's sort of made the news in education recently. Uh, his big thing was cognitive load theory, which is basically the brain can only do this much and uh, therefore we should never, and he was quite explicit, we should never do uh, discovery, project-based learning, all those sort of things. And so I found a, a, a series of paper by him, papers by him and I thought, this is amazing. And he's probably right too. Like you shouldn't be letting young people just explore ideas like as a project. Um, so I think we did uh, maybe two, two articles in a row of sort of his quite uh, heated you know, attack on project-based learning and then we had someone else giving a response and it would you know i was thinking this is fascinating and it's thrilling and this probably is the very crux of teaching if we could just decide this dilemma is it you know direct instruction just talking to students explaining things or is it project-based learning getting them to make their own discoveries let's kind of put a line in the sand and work out what we think as a group and by either the second or the third article um, basically the whole group sort of essentially just said we're over this. The answer is both. It's it's neither. Uh, stop giving us these papers. We're sick of it, kind of thing. And I was thinking, no, this is this is amazing. This is the core. This is the crux. And then uh, as a result, everyone sort of said, no, well, it's definitely both. And depending on your kids and your context and where you live and who you are and what you believe, you're going to do different things at different times for different age groups or different areas. And so that's an example of the article was saying one thing that you know project-based learning doesn't work or it does depending on which one and i was thinking oh i know which side i'm on but you know let's keep it open-minded and the group basically said this is stupid and we think this and we should stop talking about this because this is stupid and so that's the kind of thing that's kind of the nitty-gritty of how uh you know and I think there's probably a, a broader allegory for anyone trying to teach anyone anything. There's kind of what you think you're communicating, what you think will happen, uh, and then there's what, in fact, will happen. And so that was a nice example of how the group sort of made its own agenda, made its own kind of process. And that's always been part of it, the idea that someone would suggest an article and then we would read that article and they would kind of have part ownership of that and sort of be presenting it as sort of their own idea. Um, Nicholas Gorb from France, famously, we did a whole month on um, not marking. I uh, can't remember exactly the framing of how that is, but not providing any marks, no scores, nothing like that, going gradeless. Um, and so that was one that he led. And then from his French context, that was all the rage. And for us in Australia and other sort of um, Western, other Anglophone countries, I guess, that was like antithetical to a teacher needs to be ticking boxes and filling in rubrics and constantly recording everything on paper. Um, so that's the sort of practical thing that happens when there's me as the facilitator trying to get something happening and then there's other people from different contexts sharing their views. And that's, that's to me what makes the group interesting. And I think in the research article you've just finished, I talk about context collapse, which is the idea that on the internet, you know, if you tweet something from your adult education professional learning mindset and i see that and i think oh mark's an idiot that would never work in my class with my 25 rat bag kids and i say oh this is a stupid idea and then you see that and go 
I can't picture what, what, what he's imagining, but we have a fight. We have a, an altercation. And the thing that's lacking is I don't know what your context is and you don't know what my context is. And so normally that leads to conflict, leads to argument, leads to problems. But in a situation like this, that's kind of, that's the kernel that makes everything possible. So I'm forced to say, well, Nicholas is talking to me and he's got a French accent. So his context is probably quite different to mine. So I have to be wary and responding to how things might look where he works and how he approaches things and he has to do the same for me. So it's kind of using that, that internal conflicts, that context collapse to drive the learning for all of us, which is, I think, new. So that's why we're trying to research it because there's something interesting and perhaps new happening, at least new to me. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. What's the driver? Why bother? You know, what's happening Mm. in that system? It's a very human system, I noticed, which is really cool. Mm. That was statement as question. That was Mm. prompt. All right, what's going on? All right, let's do what's going on here. It's cool. Sounds good. So you're not asking questions anymore? I'm just waffling? <laughs> and we're rolling. We have been rolling. All right. Okay. So the question of what's happening here, um, like to me it's tricky because there's a whole bunch of kind of political and practical reasons why I think this is necessary and important and, you know, all those sort of things. So, you know, and it's not something that I foreground, but for me as a teacher, uh, it's in the education space. There's quite often, as as you would no doubt know, um, there's a place where it's sort of all research over rather than research with or research on. And those are sort of three different things. But what tends to happen is uh, I'm a researcher. I come to a teacher's school or classroom. I sit at the back. I take notes. Uh, I record whatever I'm recording, then I leave. And as we spoke about earlier, that becomes anonymous, stripped of context. Um, But the tricky part, I guess, is that there's sort of a a power imbalance there. And so what we're trying to do through this group is to somewhat bridge the gap between research over and research with. So um, in our second article that we're about to resubmit for the third time on Thursday, it's been a long journey, um, Sandy Nickel, Dr. Sandy Nickel talks about uh, talking back to research and that's kind of the the stance that we're trying to take. So I've heard as that, we, as I've heard that phrase a few times. What does that mean for the lay person talking back to research? So I guess it acknowledges the sort of power dynamic of um, I'm I'm doctor of education policy and you're teacher, and there's a, a power dynamic, influence dynamic, uh, respect dynamic, especially in Australia. And I won't go too much into the media and how it works, but that's sort of my special interest. Um, if I, you know, okay, something's happened. Uh, Australia scores have gone down on some international test. First person we'll call is doctor professor of education at university xyz um you know if everyone else has died we might call a teacher but otherwise we wouldn't um and so therefore the positionality of that researcher means that they're they're uh 
the research talks for education. They're, they're the representatives, the spokespeople, the spokes models, perhaps. Um, so the idea of talking back to research is that we as teachers say, uh, we disagree with that person or their ideas or their research, or we find uh, their ideas flawed. Um, and part of that is the academic process. Like everyone, every researcher, especially in academia, needs to find their own research project. So if they write one article that says, you know, teachers are bad, um, then that sort of becomes their research agenda. And that's that becomes their thing. So they're known for the teacher who said, te the researcher who said teachers are, are bad, X, Y, Z. So then they have to build on that research agenda. So papers come, begin to pile up around that particular theme. And so... You don't mean literally, as, though, that's a sort of teachers are bad. You, you, what's a kind of, no. what's a practical sort of observation of that just as a... Just so it's clear, mm. teachers. Well, are the easy one would be like our earlier example. John Swallow says uh, teachers should be doing direct instruction, which means they should be talking for the bulk of the class uh, and they should be guiding students through process. You shouldn't be getting them into groups and letting them work things out for themselves. Can I talk back to the that? Novice, I'd like to, we're the expert. I'd like Please to do. talk back. That's, I would say that's one theory. Sure, that's maybe that's one idea in a whole sea mm. of ideas. And then, you know, I think from my lived experience, I, it's, it's sure it's got its role, but it's, it's limited. There's all this other stuff that could potentially be happening. And if you take that idea, it's sort of like you're painting yourself into this funny little corner that's maybe from, you know, it's, it's kind of not acknowledging that, there's like all this other potential fabulousness of what teaching is and what it could be, um, sort of like mm. student-centred, learner-centred approaches, or that seems to be completely not acknowledged with that. I think I need mm. to stop talking. And what else do you have to tell us? Oh, oh yeah, I, I fully agree. But that's that's part of the research process. So he, he would have come out with a paper saying that, and he might have sort of been you know, playing with ideas, playing devil's advocate, who knows. Um, and then, you know, that gets cited 500 times and he thinks, oh, that was very successful. And then, you know, 20 years later in his career, that's his thing. That's his area. He's paint very literally painted himself into a corner and said, this is what I believe. This is the black and white view I have. Um, and, you know, he can explore that in different directions, different colours. But research is kind of, it, it tends to, you know, to use a ugly metaphor. It, it drills down or it focuses in or it kind of becomes more and more laser focused onto that one thing. So each researcher um, has their own special area and they tend to kind of become calcified or ossified into that one area. That's the thing that I do. That's my area. That's my knowledge base. That's my belief. And so, as you just said, uh, a teacher who has to remain a little bit more flexible and is constantly meeting thousands of new people every year and trying to build productive relationships with these people, that requires a certain flexibility of ideas. And it's almost the opposite of that kind of ossification of this is my idea, this is what I write about, this is what I believe. So it's, that's it's where the tension comes. It's really interesting on a kind of almost anthropological level because that person's identities linked to that piece of research or their their thing and then it's sort of mm. like sort of like that very left brain sort of um here's this thing and you can make any anything in the world fit that model if you selectively you know pick out bits and pieces but mm. then it's sort of 
yeah, that, that other end of the spectrum, the, the lived experience of individuals, practitioners within a situation, they would know or, or you know, they're kind of their sort of embodied experiences doesn't always match up or might match up to some of it, but then it's not the whole complete holistic picture. But mm. So then, well, yeah. So back back on track with what, what what's the purpose, or you know, what are your ultimate aims, or you know, what are you, or maybe the dynamics, or you know, do you get do you get pushback from the talking back? You know, is that a thing? <laughs> I just yeah, made that um, up. So I guess no, no, that's good. Um, do we get pushback to talking back? There's a lot of backs in one one sentence, but our backs are up as well. Um, yeah, so I mean, the the first goal is just learning. Like that's um, that's the hardest. I think the hardest thing to sell to say to people who are going to ask you to learn something and you're going to read something and then you're going to reflect on it. That's especially on the internet. That's a big ask. Where you know it's quite often you know post a picture of uh, your posterior or you know a picture of you looking uh, fit and healthy, but and then asking someone to read you know a twenty page academic article and recording videos is a significant jump in difficulty. Um, so that the main goal is just learning, but the secondary goal is to develop uh, confidence in research for teachers and at a, a sort of tertiary, tertiary political goal is for teachers to be engaged, engaged with policymaking uh, because in the education space, policymakers and academics work together, the teachers almost never do. And part of that is because if you, you know, said to most teachers, um, what do you think about a big policy issue like, you know, class sizes, for example, uh, the example, their response would be very contextual. So, oh, in my school, the classes are this and uh, that's what I think. Um, so most, most, I don't know about most, but your average teacher doesn't necessarily have that broader view to be able to say, I think this policy would work across all schools, all settings, all states in Australia, like that kind of broader view. I think is something that you get best from research, which is always asking you to insert your context, insert your beliefs, your knowledge into a sort of static, relatively you know, individual piece of research. And then the third why, I guess, is we want uh, the people in the group to be writing research, to be actively, to be stepping into those spaces, not only as people that speak back, but also people that, you know, that write, that speak, that... Uh, have a place and a space within those sort of, you know, ivory towers as it's often depicted as. So what are the obstacles in that for that third point? What are some of the obstacles that you, you've kind of, that are out there in in allowing that to happen? Uh, in a practical sense, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a big skill gap. Like if, um, so the, the paper you've got sitting on your desk, that's, uh, for me, I worked with Keith Heggett, who you've interviewed earlier, I think, right? That's yeah, correct. Cool. All right. Good. Do you have an episode number for us? No? Um, <laughs> Not that I was going to ask. I'll, I'll, I'll talk and you find it. Yeah, no, I'm, <laughs> I, don't yeah, so, have, I don't have that data. I'm not able to bring that data to this <laughs> dialogue. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. Um, so, I mean, the main, the tricky part is finding uh, an academic who's interested in working with teachers and so that, that is Keith, and that makes him quite uh, abnormal in that sense. I, my email is full of uh, people doing a PhD study saying, I'd like to interview you and would like to render you anonymous and all those things that we've talked about before. And quite often I'll be the annoying person that says, yeah, I'll sign your ethics, but 
I would like to be named and my context acknowledged. And, you know, and uh, depending on the experience of the researcher, that, that makes many of them quite uncomfortable because they sort of think, oh, but we've been taught and we've been trained that, it's, uh, you, you know, you pick a pseudonym that you'd like. And so I pick a ridiculous one to, you know, make, make it seem quite amusing. Um, but yeah, so finding a researcher that's interested in actually working with teachers, not just studying or recording or, you know, pinning their butterfly to their cork board. Um, and also getting teachers to write research is um, a long process just because it's not something that they necessarily have kept from their undergraduate studies. So our, the second paper that we'll be submitting Thursday, it's probably taken us close to 16, 18 months at this point, We've gone through multiple revisions, different pedagogical shift, methodological shifts. We've picked up authors, dropped authors, things have come and gone, people have become busy. Um, the process is really complicated and convoluted and getting people with sort of a patchwork of skills, frankly, doing group work basically is the tricky part when it comes to getting teachers to do research. And that's, that's not you know, me saying I'm, I'm capable of doing it either. It's sort of I have my own skill sets and my own knowledge base and getting that tapestry and putting it together is tricky. And then the third article we're looking to write will be much more of sort of the the things that I'm passionate about. So, you know, perhaps we'll interview you or other people that consider themselves academics, and we'll get them to talk about either their engagement with edu reading or other online fora to get them, you know, to reflect on how, how where they sit between the academic and the practitioner-teacher realm. Hmm. So, um, I liked your uh, metaphor or, you know, example of the butterfly because it taps back into some of the stuff you said earlier about your looking in encyclopedias because it that is a thing with scientists and biologists and you know arthrop uh, anthropologists Anthropo no, anthropologists no. um the, the you've, you've killed <laughs> the, you've killed the thing when you've studied yeah. it and then it's this mm. weird fixed in time um you know or entity asset or you know kind of it's it's kind of that its life has ended whereas mm. you think of something like a butterfly it's so complex that life cycle and you know the transformation and all of the rest of it and so it is interesting as a kind of you know to, to well cr to crystallize um to kind of crystallize the process rather than this weird snapshot of, oh, yes, I'm a researcher that has taken a snapshot as, of what's happening. And then it, it kind of makes me think of, say, the black swan, you know, all these Europeans not, not so long ago saying, oh, how ridiculous, there's no black swans. A swan is not black. It's like, yeah, this is our lived experience. There they are. What are you going to say about that? Or, you know, with, or with, they may not use such dialogue but it's kind of like um i guess yeah it's interesting because it's sort of um it's that push and pull that you mentioned about the tensions and the kind of who owns the knowledge and then what is that knowledge and then how do we get it um and i mean these are just the crazy times to be engaging with these sorts of things because it's kind of like the potential for interaction and cooperation collaboration online you know, it's been a the technology's been there for a while, but it's just it's a really interesting kind of human system that's mediated by the technology. I think potentially, because you're not going to get these people in the one room anytime soon. 
you might, but and then you've got a shared sort of something conundrum or something that you want to participate in almost. It's not so much to solve a problem. It's just kind of the the process to me or mm. I think I feel like I need to stop talking. Well, I, I totally agree. It's kind of like for, for, for many, many years, for many months, it was sort of like, oh, this edgy reading thing is pretty bizarre and a bit odd. And then kind of now we're all in, in, in our COVID futures and we're all, at least in Victoria, heavily locked down, it's like all of a sudden it makes perfect sense. Like <laughs> there is no other option. Um, but at the time, like it was kind of like, oh, we're, we'll be doing some futuristic stuff here um, and the future has come very quickly to to the present. And so now it just makes sense and it's just how we all do things. So that's been a nice, uh, a nice progression, even in the last three years since it began, I guess. Mm. All right. So for me, in closing, and you're probably, you know, not necessarily a teacher listening to this, but... The, I think the the idea is the same, and this is very much the process of research. You, As much as you can, you try and understand the space that you exist in, and for me that's education and teaching and the parallels between the, acad- the academic sort of mindset and the practitioner mindset. Um, you try and find the boundaries where things where the line is and where it can be smudged and pushed across and all those sort of things, um, and then you just do your bit to try and, you know, push, push back uh, in the direction that you feel is necessary. And so for me... As a teacher, that's trying to push teachers back into research and to push re- research away from teaching in many respects. Um, and I think that's that's something you know, that should be our goal in all things that we do. You know, you get an idea of your space, you find something that you think's wrong with it, that you're passionate about. And for me, that's the research and teaching and education space. And then you try and improve it, try and fix it. So that's, I think that's what we all do. And that's what I'm excited about doing in this space. In this episode, I chatted with Stephen Kolber, a teacher, writer, and researcher. You can find more information about this episode in the show notes, including links to Stephen's website, publications, and more information about the Edu Reading Group. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville.